Hello everybody, I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and this is Last Week in the Church, the show where we, in a fit of quality journalism, are relentlessly devoted to bringing you stale news that you already know. Here's the menu that we've got for you this week. Did Nancy Pelosi really get heckled at the American Parish in Rome on Saturday? The answer is no. President Joe Biden makes a safe, solid pick for his new ambassador to the Vatican, and we still may not see this guy anytime soon. Uh, it turns out that Pope Francis may not be going to that UN climate change summit in Glasgow after all. An unasked question about the blockbuster French report on clerical sexual abuse. And finally, just like Nixon and Watergate, the Vatican's trial of the century increasingly pivots on where are the tapes? That's what we're going to be serving up in just a moment, so please stick around. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been living in Rome for the better part of 20 years. Don't know if you've ever visited, don't know if you've ever been here, but I can tell you that the single most common complaint that Romans have about the city in which they live is the very poor management of this city, the, the seeming inability to perform even basic tasks, things like I don't know, fixing potholes, putting new light bulbs in street lamps, getting the garbage picked up. I mean, for the going on three decades I've been in and around this city, that is a routine complaint. It only seems to be getting worse. And the, the biggest symbol of this frustration that many Romans have is the occasional sight, and I'm not making this up, okay, the occasional sight of wild boars roaming the streets who have been attracted by these mounds of uncollected garbage and, you know, sense a way to fill their bellies. Periodically, you will see these packs of boars moving through the streets. It always becomes a phenomenon on social media. The most recent case in point was in late September when Another one of these, like, big packs of boars was spotted moving around and, and feasting on these mounds of garbage. That, those images actually sealed the, the fate of incumbent mayor Virginia Raji, who a couple weeks later went down to landslide defeat uh, in her re-election bid. Now, while boars have become, <laughs> unfortunately, par for the course, the latest addition to the menagerie was a wild porcupine last week who somehow was spotted moving up and down city streets, poking its nose into shops in a highly unwanted fashion. This went on for hours until animal control officials finally cornered and captured the wild porcupine right in front of the Vatican. Now, here's the thing. That's not even close to the weirdest thing that happened in or around the Vatican last week. Actually, by comparison, the wild porcupine seems pretty tame. Let's begin with a bit of fake news that became a viral sensation on Saturday. So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi famously a pro-abortion rights Catholic, 
was in town to give the keynote address at a summit of parliamentarians ahead of the COP26 summit on climate change in Glasgow in Scotland next month. Now, uh, Pelosi, while she was in town, she made the rounds of the Vatican. You know, she considers herself a practicing Catholic, of course, met with senior Vatican officials, and also had a private meeting with Pope Francis, which is par for the course. When speakers of the House have come in the past, they've gotten the honor of a papal audience, private. Now, also while in town, Pelosi decided she wanted to go to Mass Saturday night. She wanted to go to the vigil Mass ahead of Sunday. So, understandably, she decided she wanted to go to the American parish here in Rome, St. Patrick's Parish. Now, hold that, hold that thought in mind. Pelosi went to the American parish for Mass Saturday night in Rome. Now, at the same time Saturday night, what was going on here in Rome was the no-vax crowd. These are people opposed to the new mandates created by the Italian government that you have to have a green pass, meaning a, a certificate that you've been vaccinated, well, basically to go outside. I mean, if you want to go to work, you have to have a green pass. If you want to go to school, you have to have a green pass. If you want to eat in at a restaurant, if you want to go to a movie, if you want to go to a sports event, if you want to do anything, the requirement now is that you have to have this green pass. There are some people here who are upset about that, you know, I mean, they see it as creeping fascism or whatever. And so uh, they organized a, a protest Saturday night. This protest took place in the Piazza del Popolo. That's the People's Square here in Rome. It's often used for this kind of rally. Uh, it's actually very near my wife and I's house. And a group of protesters who were taking part in that rally broke off. They moved towards downtown Rome. Their target was the prime minister's residence and also the offices of Italy's main labor union, which has been supporting this Green Pass thing. They broke into the union headquarters. They knocked a bunch of stuff down and smashed it to smithereens. They filmed themselves doing all this. It was kind of like the Italian version of the U.S. Capitol riots, except, of course, it wasn't in the Capitol. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a big security threat. Now, the, the protesters actually, as they were making their way towards their targets, were moving close to St. Patrick's Church. Now, Pelosi was never their target, but nevertheless, her security team decided that in light of the unpredictability of what might happen, they needed to get her out of there. So they informed her shortly after mass began that she had to leave. She was scheduled to give the second reading, but instead she had to give her apologies to the pastor and then she left. Now, somebody connected the dots between Pelosi's departure and not the developing security madness going on in Rome, but the narrative in the United States that American Catholics are somehow anti-Pope Francis, anti-pro-abortion politicians, and prone to, what, blowing their tops. And so somebody created the idea that Nancy Pelosi had been heckled while she was at St. Patrick's Parish, and that's why she had to leave. Now, that version of events was quickly denied by Pelosi's staff, by the pastor of the American church in Rome, by people who had been at the Mass and actually had it on tape. There was simply no heckling. She, in fact, there was no reference mostly to Pelosi being there at all. And yet, the narrative quickly caught fire on social media the first tweet proclaiming that this had happened actually got 
1,500 retweets in a matter of minutes, and it became a kind of internet sensation. Shout out, by the way, to our colleague Chico at the Washington Post, who did, who's their Rome correspondent, who did a terrific job peeling back the onion and getting to the truth on this story. You can find all of that on his Twitter handle. Point is, this is one of those cases in which, you know, in, in a 24-7 news cycle driven more by social media than by serious reporters, anything can really catch fire and go viral before anybody has a chance to get at the reality of the situation. All right. Second story this week, President Joe Biden announced this week that his long-awaited, long-delayed, frankly, choice to be the ambassador to the Holy See, that's the formal term for the Vatican, is former Indiana congressman and former Indiana senator Joseph Donnelly. The two have a long-standing friendship. Donnelly has foreign policy experience. He is also a member of that rare breed of the pro-life Catholic. So there's really nothing to object to uh, in terms of his stand on moral questions. He's a faithfully married father of two. He has already secured what is known in diplomatic speak as the agreement. It's the French word for agreement, but it basically is the informal green light from the Vatican that he is perfectly acceptable to them as the ambassador of the United States. And yet, here's the weird part, even though he's a former member of the Senate and he has to be confirmed by the Senate, former senators always get kids glove treatment. There's a kind of informal thing that if you're a member of the club, you know, we are not going to come at you hammer and tong. He has requisite experience in terms of foreign affairs. He's a faithful, devoted Catholic. He is pro-life. So nothing to pick at there from a Catholic point of view. I, you know, so you would ask, what's the problem? Well, the problem is that Senator Ted Cruz of Texas has blocked virtually every ambassadorial nominee of the Biden administration over his differences with the administration on an oil pipeline in Russia. Basically, Cruz doesn't think the administration should give the green light to this pipeline, that it's kowtowing to Moscow and so on. Now, listen, I have been in and around the American embassy to the Vatican for more than 20 years. I can promise you that a U.S. ambassador to the Vatican has exactly jack to do with the question of whether we build an oil or whether an oil pipeline in Moscow is or is not built. However, obviously, Senator Cruz knows that. He is trying to make a bigger point to the administration here that he wants to get their attention. Not yet clear if Senator Cruz might be willing to make an exception in the case of Ambassador Designate Donnelly. The, the argument for that would be that Biden is going to meet Pope Francis on October 29th. Biden is coming to Rome for a G20 summit. Even though it has not been officially confirmed, it is widely known that there will be this tete-a-tete -tete between the president and the pope on the 29th of October. Obviously, Biden would like to have his new Vatican ambassador in place by then. Now, whether that's realistic, because that's 19 days from today, even if Cruz were to lift his objection, there would have to be hearings and there would have to be a Senate vote. So it almost certainly is not going to happen by October 29th. If Cruz doesn't budge, not clear when it's going to happen at all. 
Uh, okay, third, Pope Francis has been widely expected to attend that COP26 summit on climate change in Glasgow. It was widely rumored for months that he was going to go, and the Pope himself has said he was going to go. When he was on his way back last month from Hungary and Slovakia during an airborne news conference, he was asked about Glasgow, and he said, yes, I'm planning to go. My speech is already ready. The only reason I wouldn't go is if I'm not feeling well at the time. Now, of course, it would be completely consistent for Pope Francis to go. He's the Pope of Laudato Si. He is the global champion of the press for aggressive action on climate change. Uh, he's the leading moral point of reference in the argument. So it would, it would make great sense. However, this week, the Vatican announced that the Vatican delegation to the COP26 summit would be led by Italian Cardinal Pietro Paterlin, the Vatican Secretary of State, basically the vice pope, uh, the pope's top aide. That was widely taken in the Italian media, in the English media, and elsewhere as, by default, a statement that the pope wasn't going. And in fact, several media outlets quoted a Vatican official on background as saying that if Paroline is leading the delegation, then the Pope isn't going. Now, here's the weird part. Aside from just the basic weirdness, I mean, why wouldn't Francis go? It, it seems such a natural. But remember what Francis said in September. He said the only reason he wouldn't go would be his health. Well, if the Vatican has now announced that the Pope isn't going, what's the obvious follow-up question? What's the problem with Francis's health, right? I mean, is it related to that colon surgery he had over the summer? Is the recovery from that actually taking longer than expected? Was the surgery not fully successful? Is there something else going on? I mean, these are all obvious questions, right? The weird part is nobody seems to be asking them. Now, I don't know if that's because we're still a month away from Glasgow, and a lot of us are assuming that this Vatican statement doesn't necessarily mean the Pope isn't going. I mean. Francis is a pope of surprises, right? Until we hear from him, definitively, I think most of us would say all bets are off. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's just reluctance about going down the rabbit hole of a papal health scare one more time. I don't really know where it is, what it is, but I can tell you it is deeply weird that the obvious, obvious question left hanging by this development this week, that is, reports that the Pope isn't going to Glasgow. The obvious question left hanging by that seems to have vanished into the ether. All I can tell you is stay tuned. Speaking of unasked questions, there's a big one left in the balance after last week's blockbuster story about a new report on clerical sexual abuse in France which found that there were roughly 3,300 abusers in the French church for in the period 1950 to 2020, so a 70-year span. Roughly 3,300 abusers and an estimated 330,000 victims. I'll sit with that number for a moment, 330,000. Now, the number of abusers in that French report was more or less consistent with what we have seen in previous national reports, such as the John Jay report in the United States in 2004, the Ryan report 
in Ireland in 2009, the report in the UK, the report in Germany in 2018. In every case, we were talking a total of abusers in the few thousands. However, the number of estimated victims in that French report is astronomically higher than anything we've seen in previous reports. I mean, in the United States, for example, John Jay found about 4,000 abusers and about 11,000 victims. Now, the difference is explained this way. In those previous reports, the projected or the, the total number of abusers, or of the abused, sorry, of victims uh, of clerical abuse, uh, were based on actual reports whether formal legal reports filed with either church authorities or civil authorities, media reports, lawsuits, whatever. But it had to be based on an actual report of abuse. Now, the criticism of those reports is that that would result in significant undercounting because, critics would say, the vast majority of abuse goes unreported. So, in an effort to correct for that, the French panel that put this report together, what they did is they came up with a mail-in mail survey, which they sent to a random sample of the French population. And then they took the responses that they got, about 26,000 in all, and used the responses as the basis for making a statistical projection upon the entire population. Now, the thing of it is, if that total of 330,000 abusers is correct, one of two things, just mathematically, has to be true. Either A, every abuser in France for the last 70 years had 100 victims. And if that's true, that is a staggering conclusion for the church's response to sexual abuse in the here and now because it would mean that every time there is a credible new report of abuse, we ought to be looking for roughly 100 victims. Or the other, uh, the other possibility is that the total number of abusers identified in this report is simply the tip of the iceberg. It's a small fraction of the total who to date remain unidentified. If that's true, it also has huge implications for church authorities because it, mean, it, it means that we ought to be doubling and tripling down on our, our, our efforts to weed abusers out of the priesthood because the vast majority, apparently, are still there. Now, the thing that is weird about all of this is that despite the obvious urgent implications for church authorities to know which of, the, which of these three things because the other possibility, of course, would be that the estimate somehow is flawed. There is an obvious urgency for church authorities to know which of those three things is true. Yet nobody seems to be saying that out loud. And I get it. I mean, I get it. Nobody in authority in the church wants to be the one to cast doubt, or even to be perceived to cast doubt, on the credibility of a report about child sexual abuse, because that just smacks of denial and cover-up and defensiveness, all the ugly, old, well-known reactions of church leaders. Nobody wants to be that guy or that gal today. But somebody, I'm telling you, has to ask the question because over the long term, it is in absolutely no one's interest to get this wrong, and it is absolutely urgent for the church to get it right. 
Finally, in the news from the weird category, the Vatican's financial trial of the century resumed this past week. This is the trial in which, for the very first time, a cardinal of the Catholic Church is in the dock, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu. He, along with nine other defendants and a handful of corporate entities, are facing charges of graft, corruption, misappropriation, embezzlement, and virtually every other hand-in-the-cookie-jar offense you can possibly imagine. Most of this centers on a London property deal gone horribly wrong. Now, this trial had its first session in July and then adjourned until early October. In July, one of the issues that emerged was the fact that the prosecution, the Vatican, what are, they're called promotori di giustizia, promoters of justice, they're basically the equivalent of a DA in the American system. They had videotaped the testimony of Italian Monsignor Alberto Perlasca. Now, Perlasca is basically the mob informant turned state's witness in this story. He is the former head of the finance section within the Vatican Secretary of State. He was, in many ways, he was the architect of this London deal, but he kind of got out ahead of the train wreck. And instead of waiting to be indicted, he went to the prosecutors and volunteered to testify against everybody else. They took him up on his offer and uh, apparently videotaped. I don't know how many hours of testimony it is. I like to think it's 17 because that's a very Nixonian number. But anyway, they, they testified or they videotaped some, some period of, of testimony from Perlaska. Now, they did not turn those videotapes over to the defense in the pretrial phase. So in July, the defense lawyers basically went nuts, understandably, demanded that they be given access to these videotapes. The court at the time ordered that the prosecution turn over the videotapes, and they gave them an, uh, an August 10th deadline. In response, the prosecution wrote a letter to the court basically saying, how about no? Uh, their, their response was, we're not going to do it because it violates the privacy rights of the people who were involved and just basically, no. Now, that was kind of a stunning development on the face of it, right? Deeply weird. But let's move forward to this week when the trial reconvened. Defense lawyers, once again, were asking, what about the tapes? The, the court actually issued a skewering ruling saying, look, when you submit something as evidence in a trial, that is by definition a public act. I mean, privacy rights are gone, baby. And so the conclusion was you have to cop up the tapes. But here's the weird part. They gave him another month to do it. So the new deadline is now November 3rd. Now, look, I don't know about you. I've watched a little bit of Law and Order in my life. I know what would happen if Jack McCoy had defied a court order to turn over a critical piece of evidence, he would be in an orange jumpsuit and on a bus on the way to county lockup faster than you can say contempt. So what in the world is going on here that the prosecution has had these tapes literally for months in a desk drawer someplace? Like, why are they be given, given so much rope to turn them over? Well, the working assumption here, of course, is there's something on those tapes that the prosecution doesn't want people to, say, to see. 
And so maybe this is an effort to cushion the blow to give them an opportunity to frame whatever they're going to say about them. It's probably also true that the court here knows they are under a microscope. They don't want to do anything that looks rash or precipitous. And they don't want, that, that might invalidate the validity of whatever eventual verdict they arrive at. And there's also the basic sociological fact that everybody involved here, the judges, the, the prosecutors, and the defense attorneys, these are all veteran Italian lawyers who all went to the same law schools. They were probably all in the same fraternities. They socialize in the same circles. So there's a kind of gentleman's club thing that you just don't bring the hammer down if you don't absolutely have to. But however you explain it, I think it is deeply weird that these guys are being given so much time, so much lag time, to comply with a basic requirement of discovery in any criminal process anywhere in the world. Uh, I will also say this, uh, when those tapes are eventually released, now they're not going to be released to the general public, there's not going to be a pay-per-view cable event, uh, but when we finally do get a sense of what's on them, that, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be must-see TV. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for spending part of your Monday with us. I want to remind you that in the week between now and our next Liaison Dangerous, please spend part of your week going on to the social media platform of your choice and giving us a like, giving us a thumbs up, giving us a retweet, giving us a good review. We want to spread the gospel of last week in the church and make disciples of all the nations. Also, you can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. A shout-out to our good friends at Longbeard, a digital marketing and design company. They are the geniuses behind this show. Well, let me put it this way. If there's anything you like about this show, give the credit to them. Uh, what you don't like, that's on me. Please, stay safe. Stay healthy for the next week. Have a fantastic and blessed seven days. We will talk to you again soon.